While the music group's making their way down, if you'd like to get the the Bibles from the back of the seats, unless you have your own Bible with you. And uh, if you'd like to uh, turn to page uh, 986, uh, that's Matthew's Gospel and chapter 19, and we'll be starting to to read from verse 16. So that's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, reading from verse 16. It's on page 986 of the uh, the Bibles like this. It's headed, um, The Rich and the Kingdom of God. Just then, a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will be there for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Great, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things out of your word. Lord, please show us all what you would have us know and do this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Your best friend's wedding is just a few weeks away. And they've asked you to get ready for them. Get ready with them to to make this day really special. The the invites, uh, they need to be sent out to all the aunts and uncles. Their 20-tier chocolate cake, white, milk, dark, white, milk, dark, all the way out, 20 tiers, needs to be collected from the baker's. The bridesmaids need persuading that the the colour of their dresses really does suit them and that they look good. Then there's the rings, there's the speeches, there's the songs, there's the flights for the honeymoon. Then the question will come the night before, have you done everything you need to do to be ready? Because how ready you are will affect how the day goes. How the day turns out. 
But throughout all the hard work and sacrifice and toil and sweat and stress and anxiety, the one thing that keeps you going is that it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Now we put this much hard work and preparation into just one day. But what about something of even greater consequence? What about what happens when we die? In the passage we've just read, this man comes up to see Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Do you ever ask yourself that question? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? If you do, then Jesus is the perfect person to ask that question, isn't he? Because the Bible tells us that not only did Jesus die, but he also came back to life. He is the one person most qualified to teach us about life after death. Now, a survey taken back in 2013 found that 32% of people who believed in no God whatsoever, they're complete atheists, no belief in God, 32% of them still believed in life after death. 32%, that's a lot. Because there is no comfort in knowing that once you die, that's it. No comfort in knowing that that grandparents and parents and, and spouses and children and friends, when they die, that's just it. They're just buried and that's the end. There's no comfort in that. So it's no surprise that, that 2,000 years later we refuse to believe that death is the end and that people are still asking this same question, what must I do to get eternal life? The question is, how do you get there? Most people think, well, you try and live a good life. You try and and, and live a good life. But will that work? When we read on, what becomes quite obvious is that eternal life is something, well, if it's what we want to have, there's a problem in the way first. So this passage starts by telling us that And I'm sorry if this has shocked people this morning, but our goodness isn't good enough. Our goodness isn't good enough. This is why this this passage, actually, when we read through it, it's it's troubling, isn't it? You see, this, this young man who comes to Jesus, he seems to be, on the face of things, a really good person. If we had a friend like this, we'd say, yeah, that person definitely deserves heaven. They definitely deserve eternal life. And he tells Jesus that, well, he's never really done anything that bad. On top of not doing bad things, he's, well, he's successful. He's young, he's rich, he's sincere. He's got it all going for him. Surely, if there's anyone who deserves to go to heaven, it should be this guy right here. But when we look a bit closer, things, things begin to unravel. If you closed up your Bibles, please, please open them up again uh, to Matthew 19 and um, look down at verse 16. 
Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? The first thing that we begin to see that isn't quite right here about this man is there's some faulty thinking. That is, his thinking isn't quite, quite clear. He's looking for something that he can do, some kind of grand display of kindness that everyone can point out and say, wow, wasn't that great that that man did that kind thing or did that good thing? He's looking for that, something that he can do, something that he can show that he is deserving of heaven. Now, in one sense, actually, we want to say this is great. Wouldn't the well be a wonderful place if there were people everywhere asking, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Sounds like heaven on earth, doesn't it? But the problem is, brownie points don't work. Brownie points don't work for eternal life. It sounds good, but the problem is, and I'm sorry, it's flawed. Because if there is a standard for entry into heaven, into eternal life, if it's just a case of earning brownie points... Even this man, this good man, isn't going to stack up. Because as we will go on to see, any display of goodness or kindness that doesn't go hand in hand with love of God is going to be no use to this man. It's going to be of no use if it's not accompanied with love for God. Well, let's read on. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Great, well, perhaps there is a way for this man after all. If if he can keep God's commandments, then perhaps he can, and perhaps we can enter eternal life. Perhaps that's the way to do it. And that's what most people think about heaven. If they believe there's some kind of God, well, maybe you just need to keep his commands, and then you can get to heaven that way. Do good stuff, don't do bad stuff, then you get eternal life as a reward. But is that what Jesus means? Let's carry on reading and find out. Look at verses 18 to 20. Which ones? the man inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? The man wants to know, which commandments do I need to keep? Which commandments? Which is a good question, because in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. 613. It would be hard enough to remember them all, let alone to to obey them perfectly. Surely, Jesus, that's unrealistic, isn't it? So come on, make it easier for me. Which are the ones that I really need to keep? Which are the kind of the top commandments? And maybe it doesn't matter about the other ones. Well, Jesus answers the man. He gives him six. Oh, you can imagine his sigh of relief. Because the man's able to to listen to those six commandments that Jesus gives and say, oh, do you know what, actually, Jesus? On those six, I think I've done a pretty good job. I think I'm all right. But do you know what? He's still not satisfied. He says at the end of verse 20, what do I still lack? He knows that something isn't right. 
And this is when it all comes crashing down for this man. Look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This young man has just walked away from the only person who could help him. In his own words, the only person who could get him eternal life. But why? Why? Why has he walked away? It's because, like for all of us, at the end of the day, it comes down to where our heart finds its treasure. Where our heart finds its treasure. This man was not willing to give up the treasure that he had amassed on earth. Even if it meant getting far greater treasure in heaven. And the reason why this is, this is sobering to us this morning is how much it touches home. If our hope and security is based on our wealth or on our relationships or on our own sense of being a good person, do you know what, deep down I'm a good person. If that's what our hope and security is built on, we are going to walk away sad. Because if someone asks you to give those things up or to admit that you're not the good person you thought you are, there is no way that you would be able to do it. Your hope and security is built on those things. That's what makes you feel safe. This man goes away sad because he realises that he doesn't have the strength to be the good person he thinks he is. And we need to recognise that we all have that problem in this area. We cannot be the good people that we think we should be. Let alone God's standards, we don't even reach up to our own standards that we set for others. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus starts explaining what's happened to his disciples. Truly I tell you, It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is Jesus saying that being rich is such a problem? Why is he saying this? Well, he's not saying it's evil. He's not saying that being rich is just evil and if you're you're rich, you're just a bad person. But rather he says it's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Well, it's because there is a danger that you put your trust in that one thing. In your ability to to provide for yourself. Whether emotionally or or spiritually or, or monetarily. But Jesus isn't actually just talking about money here. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, in in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has told the other side of the story. If if it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, what about the other side? 
Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying here is that once we realise how spiritually poor we actually are, once we realise that we are, we are not rich but we are poor, we actually have a hope of getting eternal life. You see, the answer is found not by looking in on ourselves and looking to ourselves to provide, but the answer is found by looking to God. You see, God knows our weakness. God knows our weakness. Jesus has just finished explaining this to the disciples and then all of a sudden they, they, they just can't believe what they've seen. It's just such a shock to the system. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? This man who's just walked away, his, his disciples are shocked. Surely he was the number one candidate, the exact kind of person who deserves to go to heaven. He hasn't done bad things. He's, he's done good things. Surely he should be on the, on the, on the right side, Jesus. Because actually, if, if even he couldn't get in, in all his goodness, then what chance do we stand? Think about the implications of this for a moment. If even the best behaved, most intelligent, best church attending, morally good people are not even guaranteed a place in heaven, then what about us? What about us? And look, it only gets worse. Look at the beginning of verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. Not it's just a bit hard, but it's impossible. Just like trying, he's used this picture before, he's just like trying to, to squeeze an animal, this great big, this great big load-bearing animal through the eye of a needle. Now, I find it hard enough even to get a piece of thread through the eye of a needle on the, on the rare occasions where I might end up sewing a button on or something. But to fit a camel through, and it's probably one with two humps as well, you know, it's not going to happen. What Jesus is saying is if we want eternal life, if we really do want eternal life, we must begin by admitting to ourselves that we can't get there on our own. It's not just hard. Jesus says it's impossible. It's like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. But this is where it all changes. You see, after realising that it's impossible for us, Jesus says this. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Once we get to a stage where we realise we can't do this on our own, God tells us that he can. He can. When this rich young man was confronted with the fact that, that he couldn't actually be his own saviour, he has two options. He can ask God for forgiveness and help, or he can walk away sad. Now we know that he chose then to walk away sad. 
But having those, those experiences, being broken and convicted of our failures like he was, isn't actually a bad thing. I know we hate it, but it isn't a bad thing. Because it's what must happen if we are to look for a better confidence. Jesus says all things are possible for God. Whether that's getting a camel through the eye of a needle or something even more miraculous. Bringing a sinner like me who will never be good enough and in his grace rescuing me. That's the greater miracle. You see, every day we demonstrate that we do not have the power to be good enough to get eternal life. But once we realise that, like that man, we have a choice. Are we going to run away sad and, and lamenting the fact that we're just not good enough? We can't save ourselves. Or do we run to the one who has the power to save us? You see, even though our goodness isn't good enough, God knows our weaknesses. And not only that, but he encourages us with the fact that whatever we give up in this life for him, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Look at verse 27. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Peter pipes up and and asks this question. He's he's desperate to find out if it's worth it for him. Now you would have thought that, that this whole experience would have humbled the disciples into understanding how much they needed God's help to get eternal life. But instead Peter kind of speaks up and says, do you know what actually Jesus, we've given up quite a lot for you. Yeah, I've given up. I had some really nice fishing boats back in Galilee, but yeah, you know, I left them behind for you. Unlike that man who wasn't prepared to give up his money, we have given up something for you. Surely we're going to get something because of that. And Jesus answers in verse 28, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is whatever you are sacrificial with in this life, for his sake, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. This doesn't mean that Jesus is asking us to give away everything to the poor and, and become you know, like hermits living in a cave or something. Jesus probably isn't asking that of us. But he is saying that whatever we are prepared to give up for Jesus, it will be worth it. There is a day coming when those who love and who follow Jesus will be rewarded for their faith and how they have served him. It will be worth it. Especially bearing in mind what we may have to give up. Look at verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What Jesus lists there in that verse 
He's talking about family. He's talking about uh, children. He's talking about fields. All those things are things that give us security. Security. Now, we don't experience this the same way 2,000 years later. But at the time, family meant security. The two were one and the same. Because family meant home. It meant work. It meant food. It meant enough. It meant respect. And it is a huge thing to sacrifice your security in those things. So why would anyone be willing to give up these things that bring such security, that make us feel good? Why would anyone want to do it? Why would someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ from from a Muslim background be prepared to, to give up community and friends and family, essentially lose everything to follow Jesus? Why would they do it? It's because they know that in Jesus Christ, they have a far greater security than anything else could ever give them. A far greater security in Jesus. If you give up things in this life for Jesus, he says it will be worth it. If you have given up family, you will gain a a larger family of other believers. Look around you now. This is your family. And it's a picture of what we will experience on that day when we see our family all together. All those who love Jesus together. If you have given up money, you will find joy knowing that it will be used for the building up of God's kingdom. And in this week, just a little way around the world, people have given up their own lives for Jesus. Twenty people ordered to march off a coach and asked, would they convert to Islam? And they said no. And each one of them was killed. They are now living that eternal life that no one can take away from them. And it is worth it. This is why we should get excited about eternal life. We don't earn it. Jesus says, actually, do you notice? He doesn't say you will get eternal life. He says you will inherit eternal life. That's because it's a gift. It's a gift to be received. A gift that cost Jesus his own life to buy it for you. Verse 30, Jesus says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The way to get eternal life isn't by trying to be a good person, by trying to be the best person you can be. It actually starts. It's upside down, isn't it? It starts by realising that you can't be good enough. So stop pretending. God knows how weak we are. And through the death of his own son, he offers us this gift of eternal life. Do you want it? Do you want it? And every sacrifice we make for Jesus now in this life will be worth it. Because we know that what awaits us will be so much 
greater.